Good morning again, church. Um, If you have a Bible, you can open it to Jonah, where we're going to continue our series this morning in chapter 3. And we're going to start by just reading the first two verses of chapter 3. We're going to kind of work our way through here as we go. And I'll put them up on the screen for you. But... um, Jonah chapter 3, and I'm not even going to sum up what's happened up until now, because I'm going to do that after I read this. Um, Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. We'll just stop right there for a second. So um, if you were to compare this, God's message and command to Jonah with the first time that he told him what he should do back in chapter one, you would notice that they are almost identical to one another. Um, And it's not just because whoever's actually writing down the account of this decided to just be lazy and, you know, copy what they wrote the first time. It's because what God tells Jonah to do is basically the exact same thing God told Jonah to do before. Now, you have to imagine that if you're a person who's just been through everything that Jonah has been through, right? God tells you to do something. You're like, nope, I don't think so. In fact, I'm going to run away as far as I can, get on a boat, sail across the sea. A storm comes up. People throw you in the ocean, in the sea, sorry. You start to sink. Uh, You get swallowed by a fish. You know, your life is bad, we said last week, when being swallowed by a fish is a good thing, but it is for Jonah. Uh, It it vomits you out. Uh, That's the word it uses. It vomits you out on dry land. Uh, You brush yourself off, and you're like, okay. So, and then God's right there saying, let's try this again. Uh, That's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, let's try this one more time, okay? Um, Maybe we won't make it so difficult this time if you decide to actually do what I'm saying. Um, that is what's happening. He's, he's just right back where he started, um, which is kind of painful to see. Um, and if you've ever been in a situation where you've kind of gotten sidetracked from something and um, it's become kind of a mess, and then you find that it's actually good news when you're back, at least where you started, but then it hits you, I'm just back right where I started. I haven't really made very much progress here. This is where Jonah is, and I think we can relate to this quite a bit. The good news about it is that God is right there waiting for him. God is saying to him, let's go, let's try this again. Let's do this again. Like any parent or any teacher who is patiently waiting for when their child or their student is ready to take a step forward in the right direction, he's right there saying, let's do it. Uh, This is true of the Christian life in so many different ways, that God will call us to things or he will lead us to things, and until we are willing to take the step of doing that thing, of responding, we're stuck right where we are. It's frustrating to be stuck. It can be very discouraging. It can be disheartening. It can make us go, what am I doing here? Um, but the reason that we're stuck isn't because God hasn't shown up. It's not because God hasn't um, decided to, you know, actually um, still even be involved in our life. It's, uh, it's not because we haven't acquired enough information or anything like that. It's because we are refusing to move forward with this thing. God will call me to my neighbor 
showing me just how much they need the gospel. And I will either respond or I will say no. Not that neighbor or not right now. I've got too much going on. I'm in a season of life where I can, I'm going to be doing the whole pull in the drive, pull in the garage, close the garage door behind me kind of thing, right? I, I may see that neighbor at the mailbox and we'll do this, right? Um, I'll try to keep my yard nice for that neighbor's sake, maybe. But responding to, to, to them with the gospel is more than I can deal with right now, or at least if it's that person, definitely it's more than I can deal with right now. God may bring me to the family at my school or my kid's school and, 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 and say, I want you to reach these people. I want to use you to do that. And I can say, no, not right now. Uh, school's really stressful for us right now. Life is stressful for us right now. Um, I've got too much going on. The last thing I can think about, unfortunately, is other people right now. Um, and I'm not even sure where I'm at with you, God, much less um, where these people need to be with you. He will put a person in front of me and he will say to me, I want you to love that person in a tangible way. And it will be inconvenient. And so I will avoid doing it. I will say, nope, not right now, not today, not this season. When we say no to these things and any of the things that God calls us to do, if God, if there's a thing in my life that is sinful, that is like in the way, in the way, because that is what sin is, it's, it's in the way. Um, and I'm like, I'm not ready to walk away from that. I'm not ready to deal with that, right? If I'm in that place um, and I don't want to move forward with that thing, then I'm going to find again and again that I'm stuck there. Does it mean that we're done? No, it doesn't mean that we're done. It means I'm done if I'm never willing to respond to that thing, if I'm never willing to meet God in that place, if I'm never willing to let go of that thing that's sinful or just kind of deal with it. Um, and when I am ready, God is there. He is there saying, okay, let's try this again, just like he is with Jonah, which I think is incredibly encouraging um, if you recognize just how back and forth we can be in things. What we're going to see in this chapter is just how back and forth we can be, even in our efforts to do the right thing. And how much God and him being a relentless God, a God who pursues us relentlessly, is so, so huge for us. Some of us are here today struggling with the same thing again and again and again because we're stuck. We are stuck because we're right up against this thing that we just won't step forward in. Some of us have given up on even attempting to think about that thing or even attempting to respond to the thing God's calling us to do or we're not listening to God at all. And I can tell you that no amount of Bible studies that you do, no amount of attending church, no amount of uh, being around other people who are believers, no amount of uh, following new rules or anything like that is going to uh, get you past that place that God's called you to go to, which is also kind of frustrating. We've been talking about how God is, this is a relentless love that God has for us in the book of Jonah, that that's what Jonah really is about. It's about the sovereignty of God and the relentlessness of God. If you look up the word relentless, it means constant or incessant. It means oppressively constant. That basically is like that person who just will not leave you alone. Those circumstances that will not go away, right? The, um, the thing in your life that's like... Um, 
gnawing at you and nagging at you again and again and again, not just constant, but oppressively. Like, listen, I cannot get away from this relentlessness. And scripture tells us that describes God as being that way. I think it's safe to say that's how he is with Jonah. He's pretty relentless with Jonah. And eventually Jonah finds his way back, kind of begrudgingly. If we keep reading, what we read is... um, Well, we read the way that Jonah ultimately responds to God when he decides that he's going to now finally move forward with this thing and say, yes, God, I'm going to do this thing. And we read it in the next few verses here. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he's doing it. He's obedient to God. He's saying, okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go and and I'm going to do what you're telling me to do. Now, what we saw last week was that God would throw Jonah into the depths of the very sea itself in order to get his attention, and he does. It is in the cold, silent, dark waters of the sea that Jonah accepts, okay, Maybe God's way is the best way after all. He gets swallowed by a fish, and in the belly of a fish, he repents. And that's what we looked at last week. But when we look at the way that he chooses to actually obey God here in these few verses, they tell us something about his heart in this place. And basically what we're seeing is we're seeing kind of the most half-hearted evangelism that you could witness. So in one sense, um, it says that it takes three days um, to cross Nineveh. Now, what we understand about how big Nineveh would have been is that it probably you could cross it more quickly than that, but it would take three days for someone to do the job that God's given Jonah to do, which is to go to the people or to go to the leadership and to really thoroughly bring them this message. That's kind of why it explains its size that way. But what does Jonah do? He goes in one day's journey. He goes in part way, and he tells some of the people. But we also, like if, so most of us have heard the story of Jonah kind of all in one shot, right? You hear it like the Sunday school version where it all happens it kind of quickly. And so when, that, when you hear it that way, you miss obviously some of the details, but you also miss the way in which some of these things happen. We know that there's a king who repents, if you're familiar with the story. We know that like the repentance on Nineveh's side gets pretty nuts. It gets pretty crazy, and it makes it all the way to the top. But it's easy to think. I remember thinking the first time that I even looked at this in, in seminary that, um, that, that Jonah must have just gone right up to the palace. He must have gone right up to that horrifying, terrifying king that he was so afraid of when we talked back about all the rated R stuff that Ninevites did to the Israelites, you know? Like, that he went right up to that throne room covered in human skins, the, the piles of bodies, and he went right up to that king, and he was like, hey, I need to tell you what God has for you, right? Wow, that's a brave guy. That's a strong guy. Not at all what Jonah does. Jonah goes a day in, and he just starts telling random people this message that God gives him. He doesn't go to the king. He doesn't go to anyone significant. He just starts talking about it. 
Not only does he just uh, go to these people and only go one day's in instead of actually going to everyone, but he also has such a short, simple message that we're told here. Now, here's the thing about prophets. They're kind of like preachers. Uh, they're not short-winded. Um, if they, they will use five words if they can use one. And, uh, and he instead chooses to use eight words to preach this whole gospel of repentance to these people. He decides in eight words that he's going to try to tell them that they need to turn or basically burn. And in fact, if you look at it in the Hebrew, it's not eight words, it's five words. So it's even less. So this guy's got like a day of just saying the same five words to these people that he passes by and getting the word out. This is about as half-hearted as evangelism could be. And we look at that, we're like, why? Why would he at this point still be like that? Why would he be doing that? Didn't we find out last week that he repented? I mean, things were pretty crazy, right? He wrote a whole song about it. He it was beautiful and poetic, a lot prettier and nicer than something I could have ever written or come up with when I repented. Well, it turns out it was a lot prettier and nicer than somebody could come up with because it wasn't even his own words. If you look back at what he says when he's repenting, Virtually all of what he says is not Jonah's own words. He's repeating things that he's heard before. He's repeating things that we read about elsewhere in Scripture. He's doing that thing where you just repeat the stuff that you hear other people, other Christians saying about something, and you go, yeah, that's how I feel, right? You see, it turns out that it's really hard to say these words, the really big things in life, right? If you have something really important that needs to be said, something really vulnerable, something that really is significant to you, it can be very hard to get those words out if you're not comfortable using them. I was talking to a pastor recently, who, and this is a totally true story, he was sharing about how he had felt convicted that he had like, recognized that his church was not a place where like, um, there was much love between the people of the church, and he realized that it started kind of with him because he didn't really feel like he, he just like, realized at one point, I, don't really, I can't really say I love you to people. That's like, you know, and you guys know me, or if you see me at the door, I'm always saying I love you to everybody, right? No, but it's like not super common, I get that, but he just realized that he didn't do it. If you come around the office, I say it all the time. Um, but, but, but so what he realizes is I've got to start saying this. I've got to learn how to say this. And he realized that he had to start by saying I love you to his own dad. And so he calls his father, this retired farmer, and he, um, and, 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 and he, he just says, I wanted to call and talk to you about something. His dad says, okay. And they start talking about, you know, growing stuff, and they start talking about animals, they start talking about the weather, and they talk about some politics or whatever, and his dad's like, is that what you wanted to talk about? And then eventually he's like, yep, okay, talk to you later, bye. And he hangs up. And he doesn't tell him. He doesn't say, I love you. And he's like, oh, I gotta do this. So he calls him back and he said, dad, there actually was something that I had called to tell you that I didn't tell you. And he's like, okay. And so they talk again about like the weather and they talk again about some family stuff that comes up and they talk again about whatever else they could possibly fill the time talking with. And then he just goes, okay, then I'll talk to you later, bye. And he hangs up and he doesn't tell him again. He's like, he can't tell him. And he finally just picks up the phone and he calls his dad and he goes, dad, I love you. And he hangs up. <laughs> and like five minutes later, his dad calls him and he says, son, I love you too. And he hangs up. And a lot of you are like, yeah, I could totally see that happening. A lot of the wives are like, yes, I can see this happening, right? 
I still remember when my dad and my mom, they got divorced, and my dad was like, fresh, freshly after this divorce, he was like actually becoming a person who like realized that he had feelings, basically. And uh, the difficulty of what they went through made him feel this way. And so I'll never forget the first Christmas that I saw my dad at his brother's house. We were all together for family Christmas there. And he gives me this card, and he's like, hey, son, I wanted to give you this card. And he takes me in, like, my uncle's, like, office. I mean, he's like, I wanted to give it to you in here. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what this is, right? He's wanting to come, and he wants me to open it in front of him. He's like, open it in front of me. I'm like, yes, jackpot, right? There's something in here. I'm going to get some money. And, um, and so all those years of being a mediocre son are going to pay off, right? Uh, well, it turns out it did because there was no money in there. But um, I open it up and he's standing there, you know, and I open up the card and it's just a card. It's like the most generic father to a son Christmas card that you could ever write, uh, that could ever be, be written and produced, mass produced. But he had underlined a couple of like lines in it, you know, and he's like, you know, read it, and I, and I read it out loud, and it's like, you know, I'm very proud of you, a son who, who, who I couldn't, who I love very much, Mary, and he's like, that, you know, that's, I feel that, you know, I feel that, and, uh, and I'm like, this is huge, this is a huge step, right, for both of us, it's like, but it's also the most ridiculous thing if you're watching it happen in person, because the truth is, like, when it comes to these things that we, like, that, that are the most important things coming out of us, that if we don't like get in the habit of knowing how to communicate them, of how to talk about these things, then we will just, what do we do, right? We just kind of say the stuff other people say. We use their words, right? We kind of appeal to that. I mean, you, you walk into a home, you walk into, you, you know what it's like to be in any group of people, any, anything where you're like, I don't know this world. I don't know this place. I don't know this thing. So then you just go like, what's the script, right? Like, what do people say? What do people do, right? You go into Home Depot. You just, you're like, you just say like, get her done whenever someone asks you a question or something because you're like, I think that's what people say here, right? Okay, uh, that's what we do, right? Uh, I, just, I just went into the football world for the first time this year. I, I got football for dummies. I looked up things. I wrote them on my hand. I said them out loud. It made it sound like I kind of knew what was going on, you know? I'm just repeating this stuff, right? There's, there's a difference between like really actually like knowing how to even articulate something because you've kind of taken it on, you've owned it, right? And it takes us some work. And when it comes to repentance, that is absolutely no different, right? And so Jonah, what we're seeing with him, when he even repents to God, is somebody who like doesn't seem to have experience repenting. He like doesn't seem to really know how to do that in a very personal, vulnerable way. And I think a lot of us know what that feels like, especially if you're attempting to follow Jesus and, and you're like, you know, doing things for the first time. You're like, man, it's hard to say these things. It's hard to pray some of these things. It's hard to put words into, uh, well, put feelings into words. Based on what we uh, know about about Jonah and what we see about the way that he's communicating, it's, it's kind of like he's sorry, but he's not totally sorry. It's like he's repenting, but we don't really know if it's because he really feels badly about what's happening or if it's because, I don't know, maybe he got thrown into the sea and swallowed by a fish and starts to get the idea that he better turn and go the other direction or else life's going to keep getting more difficult, Right? that the circumstances have kind of forced him into a place where he's like, my back's against a wall. I think I'm going to have to change course here. Otherwise, it's just going to keep getting worse and worse for me. 
Jonah's repentance, I don't think it's like 100% repentance. I think it's kind of halfway there, maybe. And as weird as that seems, right, like why would that be what the hero of our story does? Uh, This is the point maybe then when you realize Jonah's not the hero of the story. And this is hard for us because we like things to be one-dimensional, especially when we're reading accounts like this. We want there to be a good guy and a bad guy. We want it to be somebody that we could go be like him or don't be like him or whatever. But I think what I see when I look at this is I see a person who is trying to move back towards God, trying to be obedient, trying to get past this thing that he's got to get past and deal with this thing, trying to respond the best that he can, but he's doing it and he's not 100% there. And for any of us who have ever felt like we've been in that place, the good news, again, is that God is like, he's so relentless, right? He is going to meet us in that place. I believe scripture shows us that again and again. That in our own imperfect way of coming and meeting him where we're at, that he's going to use that. He's going to use repentance that may not be completely, totally sold out. He's going to use the evangelism, the words that are not completely given the right way, out of the complete right place, with the complete best motive. And he's going to use that and he's going to do something with it. That's what we ultimately see happening here. If we read on, we see this. um, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So what we read about here is it's worked. They've turned around. They've turned their ways. They've changed their ways. But... If you understand anything about how people at this time do things like this, you realize that that what's happening here looks a lot more like a civilization, a group of people like the Ninevites, um, repenting to a god, like any god that they might hear of or learn about. Basically, let's add a new god into our group of gods more than it looks like what we read about with the Israelites, where they're coming into a covenant relationship with God, where they're, they're offering sacrifices that look a certain way, where they're, they're accepting circumcision as a way of identifying as God's people. None of that is happening here. What's happening here, again, is sort of incomplete, it seems. But it's also really thorough. So it begins with the people, it says, believing God. And the people did what people often would do. They, uh, they put on sackcloth, which shows that they're mourning and they're grieving. From the greatest of them all the way to the least of them. That's huge. You're talking about all the different levels. Of, I mean, could you even imagine? It, it's one thing to say one group of people in society, one group of people, one political party, one whatever. 
like repenting or turning away or something from something that's bad. Could you imagine all of the different socioeconomic groups, all of the different cultural groups within a large area, all of the political sides of a thing, the people who both were for the ruler and the people who maybe weren't, all of those groups together deciding that we're going to mourn and we're going to grieve? What would have caused them to do something like that? Is it just um, Jonah's words? Because they're not that great of words. He didn't seem to really elaborate very much. He didn't even use like a good illustration. He didn't have a funny story, you know, anything like that. There were no like fire coming down from heaven kind of things. What we know is that most likely that we know that there were things happening prior to this, things like famine, things like plagues, there were revolts within the people, there were eclipses happening, and all of these things, when they happened, really freaked everybody out. It was like there's something going on. So Jonah is no doubt coming to the people in a time when they are ready to kind of hear that maybe there's something that needs to change around here because life is starting to fall apart for us. We, we know that. Now, what we know about the way that God's wrath works and about the way repentance works is that there are consequences, like we said, to sin itself. And those consequences will cause things to break down and disintegrate. And that's also what the people here in Nineveh are experiencing. You'll notice that when the king commands everybody, eventually it makes its way up to the king, due in no part to Jonah, but it makes its way up to the king. And uh, what he says to the people is he says, um, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So we talked before about how violent these people are. These people are like crazy violent. They do all kinds of crazy stuff to their enemies. But he's implying that each person in this whole realm, in this whole nation, has an evil way, that there is violence in their hands. You can't be that violent towards your enemies and not in some way be violent towards one another. This is a violent people. So they're acknowledging, they're aware of the fact that there's violence happening even amongst their people. Why would they be aware of that? Maybe because that when you sin and you are living so far from the way God intends that like um, there are going to be consequences of that. So Nineveh is a place where there's all kinds of stuff happening that is not good. And this guy shows up and he says, listen, my God is the one that is doing these things. If you don't turn and repent, he will uh, basically wipe you off the face of the earth. He'll wipe you off the map. Their response, it says, is they believed God. So they called out, the word used here for God in this whole passage is not Yahweh, the Israelites' God, but it is Elohim, which is just God, a God, like a general term for God. So they, they, they added another idol maybe in their idols. They, they, they came up with another thing and they, they said, okay, this is the God that we'll respond to. This is the God that we'll repent to. They put on sackcloth and it eventually gets to the king and then he's like, okay, let's take this up one more step. Not only are we all gonna fast, we're gonna make sure our animals fast. Can you even imagine how hard that would be to be like every animal in our kingdom is not allowed to eat food? Like, try and keep your kids from eating food when you don't want them to. It's not easy to do. They also had to do that, by the way. They said, our kids aren't going to eat. Our animals aren't going to eat. Like, if we get wiped off the map and we're like, whose cow got out and ate some grass or something? Like, is that what happened that caused this to happen? Not only do they say, like, we're going to lock up all the animals and all the kids and all the people and say, you can't eat any food because we're all going to show how repentant we are. But they put sackcloth on the animals, 
Now, I'm no expert in sackcloth. I probably should be at this point, but I'm not. But I'm pretty sure that it, it really only matters when you put it on yourself, right? Like if I put it on you and I'm like, just go with me on this, okay? Because we all need to be repentant. Everyone walks in, put on sackcloth. Don't worry about why you're doing it. I'll explain it to you at the end of the service or something, right? Like uh, it doesn't probably do a whole lot when you've got cows standing there with sackcloth over them. Like is God looking at that going, they get it, you know? That cow really figured it out. He knew what he did, he knew what he did, and he's taking it seriously, and I appreciate that. I'm going to honor the Ninevites, because even their cows are repentant. No. Believe me, I, it took me all of one second to start Google image searches for cows with sackcloth, and there are so many out there. There are good things about the internet, it turns out, and one of them is that. So I encourage you to go look it up. Uh, I'm not going to show it here, it's just too hilarious. But even thinking about the image of like this king goes and he says, there's gonna be like a decree out here, okay? We are gonna not eat any food. We're gonna even put the animals in sackcloth. Even they're gonna be in mourning. We're gonna do whatever we can think of to do in our own weird way to let this God know that we don't want any of the punishment that he is saying he's gonna send our way. Most commentators would agree that the repentance that is seen by the Ninevites is not sincere repentance that God calls his people to. They don't ever speak of a relationship with him. They don't ever speak of a covenant with him. They don't ever do the things that he makes it so clear to the Israelites they must do if they're to be his people. So then what are we looking at here and what does God do with it? You know, we read in Jeremiah when God is explaining kind of how things are going to work to his prophet or through his prophet. He says this in, in, um, in Jeremiah, uh, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. So what they've done is they've repented of what? Of their evil. They've repented of the evil things they've done. God is not entering into a relationship with the Ninevites. He's not making them his people. He's simply saying to them, if you guys don't knock it off, you're going to be gone. And they say, okay, we'll knock it off. And he goes, okay, you guys can stay around for a little while longer. That's essentially what God does to the Ninevites. It's what he allows to have happen. This is what's so crazy about this whole chapter is that we're basically reading about a guy, uh, Jonah, who like repents but sort of repents and that God uses that. Uh, he evangelizes but sort of evangelizes, right? God uses that. A group of people who repent but they kind of repent. They repent of the bad things they've done. They repent because they don't want to get, they don't want to suffer. They don't want to be punished for these bad things. They don't want to have to suffer. Uh, but it's not the kind of repentance that you think about God's people coming into a relationship with him. You see all of these things happening, and we see God, like, using all of these things. We see God showing up in each and every one of these places and saying, I'm still going to meet you in this thing the way that it is, and I'm still going to respond, and I'm still going to do what I said that I would do. 
To me, there is no better news than the news that we, uh, we worship a God who is big enough and who is relentless enough in his love for us that he meets us in the imperfect place where we kind of attempt to come and meet him. That he shows up in that place and that he still uses us and he still works in our lives. That is one of the most encouraging things to me. I think we see it with each and every one of the people in this. You know, I read this, um, I read this passage earlier out of Romans 8. You know, this God is for us, sort of who can be against us, right? What should we say to these things, Paul says in Romans. He's just been sharing the gospel and talking about the gospel and saying, how do we respond to something like that, right? And he says something here about this uh, that I want to read in Romans. He says, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. There is so much good news in those words because what Paul is telling us is he's saying it is because of God's grace that we stand with him. It is God who justifies. It is God who does the work of making it possible for us to be with him, not us. It is God who does that. It is not us who justify because we figured out the right way to do it. It is not our community that justifies. It is not our nation or a people who decide to repent and turn away from their wickedness. That is not what justifies people. It is not the power of the message that goes forth and the words and the eloquence. It is not the purity of our own hearts when we come to God on our knees and say, I have blown it and I need you again. Because we even do that imperfectly. We do that without fully being in it. It is none of those things that justify us. It is God who justifies us. And because of that, he can be relentless towards us. He can be relentless towards us. He can come again and again and again and meet us in the place we're in again and again and again. He can, he can bring deliverance and mercy instead of wrath to people who deserve it for their wickedness. There are two components to the gospel message. There is the grace and the hope and there is the justice. We don't just bring a message of God's wrath. We bring a message of justice. If you just preach to people that God will make them suffer, that is not the whole gospel. If you just go to people and show them love and compassion and try to bring justice to them, that is not the whole gospel. There are two sides to it. There are two parts to it. But the good news is that God meets us there and he justifies us. I just think that this is such good news. And it's, it's hard for us because, like I said, we want stories like Jonah to be nothing more than Sunday school stories. We want them to be stories that we can hear about and think, if I do this, this happens. If I do this, this happens. If I respond, I do it like this. Don't make this mistake over here. The truth is it's so much messier than that. The only hero in these stories truly is God. 
He's a God who calls Moses to follow him. And when Moses blows it, he still lets Moses do what Moses is supposed to do. God calls Abraham to follow him. And when Abraham blows it, God still uses Abraham. Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. And when they blow it time and again, he still says, follow me and I will meet you in that place. In fact, I'm going to use you. In fact, I'm going to continue to tell you how loved you are and that God wants to keep being in relationship with you even if you feel like he shouldn't be. I'm gonna keep meeting you in this place. I'm gonna keep meeting David in this place. I'm gonna keep meeting these prophets who are not totally obedient to me in this place. I'm gonna keep meeting my own people, the Israelites in this place, and I'm gonna keep justifying and I'm gonna keep being the one who relentlessly pursues them even in their shortcomings. That is such good news for us. So as we worship this morning, as we take communion, as we remember what Jesus did on the cross, as we remember the sacrifice that he made, we do that. Um, we do that remembering um, that, that this is the God that we serve, a God who is this sovereign, a God who is in control, a God who says, come to me, however imperfectly you attempt to, and I will meet you there, and I'll walk with you, whatever you're in. Let's pray.